This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEN. Welcome back to another episode of Sporting Max. Thanks to Bastion GRP for all your specialist needs of recruiting, engineering and defence. Head to bastiongrp.com. Now on the show today is the current record holder for officiated games in NBL history with 949 games. NBL referee Ray Hunt. Ray, it's an absolute honour to have you on. What's going on? Thanks, Max. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. No worries. What's been going on at the moment? So I hear there's been some um, NBL replay centre this season. Yeah, I've been working in the replay centre with uh, the NBL, uh, which has been Is that really good. The coaches challenges and things like that. Yeah, coaches challenges and uh, review of calls and uh, out of bounds that need to be looked at or they want to check in the last uh, couple of minutes of the game. Yeah, so it's um, yeah, it's good. Keeps me involved. Do you have to be on site for that or can just do it through? Um, most places uh, we go into the NBL hub in South Melbourne, but there yep. are a couple of places around that we have to go on site at game because the the uh, Wi-Fi is not good enough to get the link back to uh, the replay centre in South Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to get into a little bit of your career and things like that. You had a couple of basketball stints at St Kilda and Melbourne Church. What was that like? Yeah, it was good. Uh, I started playing basketball. My dad uh, was playing basketball, so I used to tag along to training and things like that. And then um, a guy down the road uh, said, you know, why don't you go to that stage? It was St Kilda Police Boys. So I went to St Kilda Police Boys and played under 12s through to under 16s. And then I went to uh, Melbourne Church, which became Melbourne Tigers uh, in under 18s and played two years in senior basketball. Were you any good? Pardon? Do you rate yourself as a basketballer? No, no, very average, very average. (laughs) Shooter or playmaker? No, uh, no, I was the distributor. I was a uh, a guard and uh, got the ball to the better shooters. Yeah, absolutely. And there was was a lot better shooters than me, let me tell you. Yeah, so when did you first start refing basketball? Was it at a junior level or did you get straight into maybe Big V or something like that? Um, no, I started uh, back when I was 17. So that's uh, about 68, 69. I was still playing basketball. My dad was a referee as well. So then I just started refereeing to get some some pocket money for to live on and, and play around with. And then... Uh, the basketball refereeing got serious and then my playing days, I was getting splinters in my backside sitting on the bench all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eddie Crouch told me uh, to give away playing and take up refereeing, um, you know, full-time, or not full-time, but uh, concentrate on my refereeing, which I did, and and the rest is history. So when did you realise that you could be or make it as a, as a ref? Uh I don't, I don't know when I actually really thought, you know, when I could make it. I just sort of continued to referee and, um, you know, I slowly worked my way way up the list. And then, um, you know, once it got more serious and I got better games, you know, then I thought, well, you know, maybe the Olympic Games could be mm-hmm. the, the pinnacle, which uh, 
you know, which w- was one of my goals. And, uh, yeah, so just continued on through that. How big of a goal-setting process is it um, when you referee? Um, I think it's important to have to have goal-setting and just to make sure that you – like your goals aren't too high. Yeah. You know, start yeah. off with, uh, with small goals and as you achieve those, then add to – you know the next level, and uh, and just continue chewing little bits off at a time, rather than you know trying to go full on, you know right from the start. It's a slow process. So when did you get your first break uh, as a ref? I um, I got my first break as a referee uh, was the uh, the men's club championships in Adelaide, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure of the year, but. Um, I was going over with some friends just to have a look as a spectator by train, so we caught the train over, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got to uh, got to the station and getting off the train. And as I'm getting off the train, I see Eddie Crouch frantically waving his arms, and I said, "What's wrong, mate?" And he said, "Did you bring your referee's gear?" I said, <laughs> "No, I didn't." And he said, "Well, they're one referee short," and I told them that you were coming over. Um, do you want a referee? So I said, sure, but I've got no gear. So he said, that's all right. You can wear my shirt and we'll go and buy some pants and shoes. So we went down the street and bought uh, some pants and a pair of Dunlop volleys mm-hmm. and uh, I refereed. And so that probably, that I had, uh, I think I refereed four games at the uh, men's club championships. Was mm-hmm. So the, the men's club championships was like, the forerunner to the NBL as it is today. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that probably scooted me along three or four years in my career as a basketball referee because I was I was seen at a at a senior men's club championship. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that scooted me along a bit. What's the most important focal thing to focus on? Is it obviously it's your hand signals when you're fouling, uh, when you're signaling fouls and things like that. But what about um the accuracy of your signals in terms of communicating with other refs. Uh, the the biggest uh, the biggest thing in refereeing is uh, is communication, mm-hmm. um, whether it be to the players um, or to your fellow referees and to the score table. And you know your mechanics need to be to be sharp, and you and your signalling needs to be good because your signals shows it to the crowd and shows it to the score table so they can get accurate um, accurate details from you. Can you recall how many tech fouls you've given out over your career? No, no, not really. Um, it, it's quite funny you say that because, um, I mean, we as referees, we sort of don't think of technical fouls as, as being, you know, such a big thing. But um, it's funny when you talk to uh, – ex-players and old players, and they talk about it and they go, remember when you technical found me? Yeah. And I go, no, <laughs> mate, no, not at all. And, oh, they know the game, the time, they know it all. But, mm-hmm. um, no, look, um, for me, technical fouls was extreme. Um, you know, a lot of things had to go wrong for me to give a technical foul. I mean, the obvious ones of, um, you know, verbal abuse that was um, – Everybody could hear. I mean, that's automatic. Um, but if they were derogatory to me and my family, then that was automatic. Mm-hmm. But 
if there was just communication between the player and the referee and no one else could hear it, then, you know, you could have a fair crack at each other. So it wasn't too bad. And that's until we got microphones. Yeah. <laughs> what was that like when you got when you got mics? Did you all have to settle it down a little bit? Well, yeah, you couldn't really say what you wanted to say most times because it would go to broadcast and then they'd come back and talk to you about that. But, um, yes, you certainly had to, um, to tone it down a bit, that's for sure. So when – and do you remember your first game in the NBL? Uh, no, I don't. No, my mem- I, I don't remember that sort of stuff very well at all. But um, I've got uh, another referee who was is a bit older than me, but um, he was around when I was around. But he remembers every game and wow. just about – he's incredible. But, yeah, no, my memory's not that good for it would have been at Albert Park and uh, I think – I can remember my first international game. It was okay. at Albert Park and it was two-person officiating and I was officiating with Les Dick. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, he said, you can throw the ball up. And I think it was a um, it was a Yugoslavian team. Yeah. And so I, I go out there to throw the ball up and I stand – the guy's about seven foot and <laughs> – and uh, see, the guy looks down at me and he goes, hey, ref, can you throw that ball high enough? <laughs> and, I, and what did you say? And, and I thought, stop you. So I threw the ball as high as I can and it just went up and it went up and it went up. And he just looked <laughs> down at me. He just looked down at me and smirked. So, yeah, that was pretty funny. So you were like, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> what, what was that like when you get your fever badge and you're able to, you know, ref at a high level. Yeah, I mean, the FIBA badge uh, was was one of my goals. And, um, you know, of course, that is the forerunner for, you know, to referee Olympic Games and World Championships and things like that. So, yeah, it was a very important stepping stone for me to get my FIBA badge and um, then be able to get exposed to uh, to international games and travel overseas travel with the Australian teams when they went away. So, yeah, it was really good. Absolutely. So can you tell me about the process of ref training when you get to that NBL level or is there a consistent ref training that you may have to do throughout the week? No, most of the uh, most of the referee training uh, in my day was individual. Mm-hmm. So it was up to you to maintain your fitness and um, – and your skill level of calling. And, and uh, one of my theories was that um, for me to be better than somebody else, for, for my fitness to be really, really good. So, you know, I trained really hard. So my theory was fit fit body, a fit brain, and then, you know, makes you fit in the last minute of the game so you can still make those calls. So, yeah, I was... Um, I was extremely fit in, you know, my heyday of refereeing, that's for sure. Can you talk to me about the importance of getting to the right position at the right time to be able to pick the gap, you're able to see where there might be a reach in foul or something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's, the, uh, that's the important part of the game in, in officiating is getting to the right spot and to keep a gap between the defender and the offensive player. Um, and if you can do that, then you can make decisions on 
who came forward and caused the foul or, you know, whether they made contact or not. And, you know, even in today's officiating, you know, maintaining that gap, maintaining movement when when you're officiating to get that gap is is so important in the game. Yeah, you've refed in every NBL final series I've got here from 1983 up until 2011 when you retired in 2012. What was that like? I mean, you would have seen some outstanding basketball played in those grand finals. You had the, you know, the Magic and Tigers rivalries, maybe the Tigers yeah. and Giants and things like that. Yeah, they were, um, they, they were some fantastic games. And um, I mean, especially with, um, with Spectres and Tigers um, in the game, those games, you know, with the stadium filled with 12,000 people going nuts and, you know, Game three of a grand final well, it was just uh, it was just fantastic, but the uh, games were tough and uh, and physical and but um, yeah no though it was really good and it, it's always nice to be uh, involved at that end of the season that you know that you've worked hard enough during the year to uh, to be able to get to that standard to be one of the two or three referees to um, to referee the final series. So yeah, it's always always a nice um, reward at the end of the year. And I mean, between the referees, it's always competitive as well mm-hmm. because, um, you know, especially, you know, a good mate, Eddie Crouch, Bill Milton or um, those guys, you know, we always had a little pack that, um, you know, if you didn't get, if you got a phone call, you know, for the game three, you'd, uh, you'd let everyone know. But yeah. <laughs> if you got the call, um you were very reluctant to ring somebody else and say, hey, I got a phone call, did you? And mm-hmm. they say no, and, you, and so you feel a bit shitty about that. But, um, no, it's very competitive, but all still very good mates too. Yeah, absolutely. What about when you try and focus, what about prior to the game, maybe you're warming up and things like that. Big finals game, game three series is pretty much on the line right there. It's almost all said and done. You've got 15,000 fans maybe at a Rod Labour Arena going absolutely nuts. What's that like and how do you zone in your focus? Yeah, it's um, I mean, that becomes very important. I mean, not that, uh, you know, just the last three minutes is an important part of the game but you certainly are aware of um, where the game's situated. Um, the, the foul count on players that um that are in the game and, you know, you've got to be aware of all those sort of things and make sure that you get, again, getting to right positions to make the calls and because every referee doesn't want to make a mistake and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe cost the team a game, you know, you just want to make sure that uh, you're focused and you get the calls right. Now, a very tough time in your life, Ray, when you were diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, Can you take me through what that, period of time was like for yourself yeah it was um it was tough in one regard but um i used uh, my basketball refereeing as uh as the carrot for me to um to continue going ahead it was it was quite funny i um it was uh, uh early january i think and my partner and i were up the street and it was a slight incline to get uh, to get uh, the Sunday papers and uh, I got to the top of the, the rise and I was really short of breath 
And my partner, Janice, said to me, what's wrong with you? And I said, oh, must have a bit of a cold or something. And she goes, oh, okay. So um, that sort of continued on. And then later in the, in the week, um, I uh, was on the rowing machine at the gym and I was going pretty hard at the rowing machine and I had to stop. I was really out of breath. And I thought, oh, God, I better go and see about this. So um, I uh, went to see uh, Dr. Peter Larkins, who was uh, looking after me. And, uh, you know, did a few tests. And um, I said, it feels like I've got, um, you know, like asthmatic, you know, senior mm -hmm. asthmatic. And he goes, yeah. oh, no, you're too old for that, he said. <laughs> so... We had further tests and, uh, oh, sorry, he organised further tests for me to, to go and uh, get done. And uh, I was supposed to get it done on the Wednesday and I found out on the Tuesday that I was refereeing game five of the grand final. So okay. I put off my tests, getting tests, so I went and refereed game five of the grand final and then went and got tested the next day. And uh, so I had uh, the scans done and five o'clock that night, Pete Larkins rang me and he said, I've got a cardiac and thoracic surgeon uh, ringing you in the next 15 minutes. And I said to him, well, that's a bit more serious than what we we're talking about, you know, yesterday. And he said, I'll leave it to uh, the doctor. So, okay. So the doctor rang me, said, uh, I need to see you in my rooms tomorrow morning. Can you bring your scans? Um, so to say, yep. So I went and picked those up, went and saw him. And, um, this was, that was on the Friday, mm -hmm. um, went and saw him. Um, he explained to me that I had a large, uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma just behind my heart and partly around my esophagus and, uh, explained to me that they'd have to operate. They'd get as much out as, out as they can through the operation. And then I'd have to wait and see whether I needed chemo or radiation after that. So that was the Friday. Um, so I said to him, okay, so when's all this happening? He said, oh, I'll do you Tuesday. And I said, <laughs> I've, got, I've got nothing on tomorrow. Do you want to try tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I had, I had the operation and they got uh, a lot of it out by the operation, but a piece about the size of a golf ball was left. The size of the lymphoma was the size of a lemon wow. that they took out. So, yeah, I got that. Uh, and then I uh, I had uh, um, a treatment for what was left, um, which lasted about, uh, about three months. And, uh, yeah, so after that, um, I was all good. How'd you try and build your physical ability back up after that? Yeah, it took it took quite a bit of time after the chemo and uh, and stuff like that. It took time to uh, to build my fitness back up, and I never ever really got back to um, to the fitness that I had just because of the chemo and things like that. But I was still at a reasonable fitness. I want to get into world championships and specifically the Seoul '88 Olympics. What was that like for you to be an official at an Olympic Games? Uh, it was just absolutely unbelievable. It was um, 
it's certainly the pinnacle of my refereeing career, that's for sure. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, just uh, being at the the opening ceremony and being involved with, um, you know, international referees that I'd refereed with before and mm-hmm. we were at the pinnacle and we are all, we, as an official, you don't march with the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, We had an area set aside for the officials and we were all sitting together and Jeff Weeks was another Australian official yep. who went away with went away with me and so we were together so yeah the opening ceremony it all came about and then when they lit the uh the cauldron and you know it was just I just burst into tears and I looked at Jeff Weeks and he was exactly the same and mm-hmm. and we had a um we had a fantastic time it was just so so special it was good and it was a good and it was a good Olympic Games because it was just before all the technology came in all the security technology came in, so for and and Seoul was good because a lot of the uh, the games were centered into uh, like a hub, so they were all within walking distance. So, mm-hmm. so, like for most events, we could walk to them. So we used to turn our official passes over the other way, and we also always had kangaroo pins or something like that. So yep. we'd walk through the <laughs> athletes' entrance. And uh, so, you know, if we got stopped, we'd give them a kangaroo pin and they loved it and they kept, yeah, go on. Yeah, keep keep walking. <laughs> so, yeah, it was good. I got to, uh, we got to see the athletics and uh, the boxing and the cycling. It was, um, it was fantastic. Now, I want to get into the Australia versus the Kareem All-Stars, which you did officiate. What was, what was that experience like? It would have been very surreal. Oh, that was another surreal experience. You're right. It was the players that I grew up in you know, reading about and watching uh, tape of and players like that, especially with Kareem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was just ex- exceptional to be on the same court. And I've got this fantastic photo with Kareem on the free throw line and I'm stepping in to uh, administer two free throws and so mm-hmm. I'm in the middle. Kareem's just behind me and there's a Damien Key on one side and Andrew Gaze on the wow. other side of me lining up. So it's a fantastic photo and it, it brings back some great memories of, uh, of that time. It was really good. It's a pretty superstar lineup. How did you get that job and how did that all come about for you? Um, I think it's because um, it was just after the, the – the 88 Olympics. So the two referees that went to the Olympic Games, they they just gave it to to those referees. I think um, I'm not sure the appointment just came out, and which when I received it, I was very happy about. Um, but yeah, I think that was just the case at that time. What's the biggest game in your career? I guess that stands out for you as a pinpoint. Um, would it be an NBA final series or a game in the Olympics? Um, my first game, my first game in the Olympics was, was pretty special. I had, um, uh, the replay of the gold medal game four years previous and it was Spain versus USA and, and nobody in, in Seoul, in Korea, nobody liked the Americans because of the, the demilitarized zone, everything like that. So everyone was barracking for Spain and it was packed stadium and I was refereeing with a guy that I knew which really helped me um 
and I can remember running up and down and I think for the first two minutes I think I was hyperventilating just I was breathing in and out so hard I uh I thought I'm going to die here, but uh, <laughs> once I got once I got a, a whistle on an out of bounds, and then I settled down, and then the game went really well. So, yeah, that was fantastic. When you're sharing court with superstars of the game, how do you try and you know keep your cool a bit, or is it hard to sometimes maybe call a foul or things like that against someone like a Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? No, it's um. I, I mean, once when you're refereeing at that level, I mean, you, you see something, you call something. You're like, you see yeah. the foul, you call the foul. You don't necessarily worry about uh, th- think about who the players are or anything like that. It's just mm-hmm. if you see the infraction, you call the infraction. Um, and you know whether they're superstars or not, they're human. We're human, so if you can talk to them as you like to be spoken to, you know, most majority of the times. Um, they react to that really well. So obviously coaching and mentoring and in the replay centre right now at the moment, what's that been like to, you know, help the NBL refs coming through the system? Yeah, I, I had a mentor role uh, after, after I retired. I had 12 months off and then for three or four years, I mentored all the young guys that were coming through. Uh, the ranks in the NBL, which was really good. I mean, it's always rewarding to mentor some of the young guys that are coming through and try and impart some of your um, wisdom to them and some of the ideas and uh, tendencies that can help them get through different situations that, you know, you've been able to, to work your way through as well which was really good. And then, you know, working in the replay centre also keeps me involved um, with all the referees as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I hear you were suspended only once in your career as an NBL ref. Can you tell me how that how that all happened? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's not, a, it's not a, uh, a nice story or a good story. Um, <laughs> we were refereeing. It was uh, uh, Melbourne Tigers were playing at uh, out at um, Parkville, and I'm not sure who they were playing. But um, I was with Ian Watson and, and another younger referee. I think it was maybe his second game. Yeah. And uh, and uh, we were running the game, and it was about halfway through the second quarter. And uh, Seamus McPeak, who was the uh, the owner at the time of uh, of Melbourne Tigers, he was just absolutely giving it to this young referee because mm-hmm. uh, he used to sit he used to sit on the baseline, so we that's where on the side that we used to work. Yeah, and uh, the young referee said, "Look, I'm really I'm really struggling. I'm I can't handle the, the pressure coming from from Seamus." I said, oh, "Okay, no worries." So I said, "Look, I'll try and deal with it if I can." Anyway. Um, couple of times up and down the floor, Seamus is starting to bark. And I said to Seamus, you know, you need to quieten it down. And, the, you know, the game goes on, so we go up and down. And then he gave me another mouth when I came down the floor. And so I responded in not the way that a referee should respond to a spectator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he reported me. What did you do, physical and or verbal? Verbal. 
Yeah. Was all verbal. I mean, we'd had with Seamus, um, he was a very passionate owner and, and uh at Parkville when we used to come off the floor, there used to be a, a tunnel. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he used to meet us halfway down the tunnel if uh if the tigers had got done and used to give us a mouthful and he'd been reported a couple of times for that as well. So we had a bit of an uh, an ongoing running battle for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, I was found guilty. Um, I, guilt- I pleaded guilty under provocation um, and I got fined a $500 suspended for six months. Wow. <laughs> I didn't have to pay the money. It was just... It was a suspended sentence, but yeah. Um, yeah, if I got reported again in the next 12 months, then um, I had to pay the money. But in saying that, you know, Seamus and I used to have our run-ins, but, um, you know, when I was diagnosed with the cancer, he was one of the first guys to ring up and uh, wish me all the best and wish me, and if he could do anything to help me out, he mm-hmm. was more than happy to help me out. So that's the kind of guy he was. You there to experience any of the Tigers or Magic Basket brawls or maybe a little parky elbow straight through the face of Ray Gordon? <laughs> yes, I was involved in a lot of those, a lot of those uh, altercations. And uh, yeah, look, most of the times it was uh, it was all lighthearted. Ray Gordon was a very fiery guy. He had mm-hmm. white line fever, but um, he he was a, a tough competitor and. And Parky was the same. He wasn't as as maybe as crazy as Ray Gordon, but um, <laughs> he still had uh, he still had his tendencies. But uh, look, they're all good guys, and they wanted to win. And it's just the competitive spirit of everything. And like as a referee, we just needed to um, to keep the lid on that, and we have to do it the best way we can. Well, you've got Lindsay Gaze at one end of the court who sits back and you know lets the Tigers do their thing. And then you've got Brian Gorgian at the other end, strolling the court and, you know, barking, <laughs> barking at all and all the players and things like that. And you've got Kevin Gorgian on the sideline who I've spoken to on the phone recently. And he's, he's supporting Brian, but then Lindsay Gaze is at the other end, you know, just sitting back and letting Andrew take control um, and coach and things like that. So what was that like to, you know, see complete opposites. And I guess that men in black, view that a lot of people had at the time of the Southeast Melbourne Magic was was pretty much seen on court in how different coaches went about. Yeah, yeah and uh, yes, Lindsay wasn't uh, all that laid back. He used to get up and he used to let you know at, at different stages if uh, the Tigers, as he thought, were being hard done by. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you couldn't beat Brian for uh, – for the, his feelings and, again, I mean, he's just so competitive and, um, you know, win at all costs and, mm-hmm. you know, if he can get if he can get a call that goes his way, then, you know, so be it. But um, I remember as uh, refereeing uh, Spectres in Canberra in Canberra and mm-hmm. um, I'd turn to, to chase a fast break and Brian was too far into the sideline, I, I end up shirt fronting Brian, and and kept running. And uh, I didn't realise at the time uh, until after half time. And when he came out after half time, uh, Smithy told me he said, "Oh, you've cracked three of his ribs." <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so which you know, Brian never stepped up to the sideline again. He kept well back from the referees that were chasing fast breaks after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's the What's the funniest moment or best moment of your career? Um, oh, there's a there's a couple of uh, couple of situations in the game that in the games that really stand out to me. You know. It, in one way or another, um, good or bad or serious. Um, one was in, uh, I think it was 1984, I think we, the Australia played the uh, NIT All-Stars, an American yeah. team, and at the old Glass House. And I think it was the first game at the Glass House. Mm-hmm. And uh, Billy Mildenhall and I were refereeing. And um, the, the game was very close and, uh, they were having trouble with the score bench because it was new and uh, it was malfunctioning and stuff like that. Anyway, the scores uh, the scores were level with about, I think it was about six seconds on the clock to go. Anyway, Australia inbound the ball and slowly move it up the floor and then Wayne Carroll scores the winning basket and the Americans are jumping up and down saying the clock didn't start. You know, um, there's no way known that they could have scored that basket in that time. And so, you know, we went to the score table and asked the score table. And they said, no, no, everything was okay. You know, they scored it in, you know, the, t- the clock was running. Mm-hmm. So we, okay. So we said to um, to Lindsay Gaze, look, this is the situation. Do you want to play extra time? Um, or do you want to take the win? And Lindsay said, we're taking the win. And mm-hmm. I said, well, okay. I said to Billy, okay, we're not playing overtime. Let's get off the floor. The Americans were going crazy. The coaches mm-hmm. were going crazy. The players are going crazy. So I said to Billy, let's go. So we ran off the, running off the floor. Mm-hmm. And just as we get to the door to go into our change rooms, we look around and there's two of the Americans chasing us. <laughs> so, so we get... We get to the change rooms and they were locked and there was a, a, oh, no. a corridor and a series of three change rooms. So we went to the very end one and that was like on a 45-degree angle. And so when we get there, we're trying to – Billy and I are trying to hide in the corner. Uh, two players, Jim Foster and uh, Ben Tower from the NIT All-Stars, they caught up with us. And so we're standing there and they were just giving it to us with language that I can't yeah. repeat. Yeah. And pointing and, and you know, and I thought, oh, we're going to die here. And then, you know, uh, a security guard who was smaller than me trying to, you know, get these six foot, ten, seven foot blokes away <laughs> from us. You know, it was like, uh, it was, it was like a fly on a camel's ass, fair dinkum. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but, but a funny thing, uh, Jim Foster came back out. Uh, he came back out to play with uh, the Coburg Giants. Mm-hmm. And uh, Billy and I were playing uh, domestically Thursday night down at Albert Park. And uh, Jim Foster walked in uh, into court one at Albert Park and recognised that Billy and I were playing. So he walked up to the referee and asked him and took the whistle off him. And then he blew the whistle and called a foul on Billy and I. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Um, Another, well... Probably uh, a game for sheer pressure of uh, of making calls was um, 
1986 uh, was Brisbane versus Adelaide in Brisbane. Uh, a minute to go, uh, 12,000 people. And uh, I call a charge on Leroy Loggins, who's their, their, their gun player, yeah. of course. Um, it's his fifth foul. Oh, big call. Big call. The place goes dead quiet for about mm-hmm. 10 seconds, and then the whole place just erupted. <laughs> um, and, you know, Adelaide won in overtime, and, um, you know, just the pressure of that call, uh, to make that call on a, on a gun player on his fifth foul, you know, really decides the game. And, you know, you, you just hope that you're right in, in your making that call and you go back and watch video and thankfully for my favour, I, I was right. And, uh, yeah, the call was correct. So yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think Leroy Loggins is the greatest imports ever played in the NBL? Uh, you've got him, you've got Copeland, there's Dave Simmons got- who you could possibly put up there. You've got yeah. Bryce Cotton, who's been extremely consistent over the last yeah. five years. Plus, plus Cal Bruton. You got Cal mm-hmm. Bruton as well. Um, they were they were all great players, and um, you know, in in their different in their different rights, in their different styles, but all fantastic players and all, all great guys too. That um, you know could really play the game and really added to to basketball in Australia. Yeah. They were. That was just fantastic. I mean, uh, for sheer awesome um, being involved in people was 2000 is the, the the game prior to the Olympics where Australia played the USA yeah. at, uh, at the tennis centre. I mean, just for in awe of the people that were on the floor, mm. um, that was a game to, uh, to referee as well. Yeah, which absolutely. was fantastic. Um, um, and my mate Billy Mildenhall and I were doing that, but he opted out after three minutes. Really? Yeah, he got uh, uh, Jason Kidd ran through him. Oh! And knocked him over and he fell backwards and smashed his elbow. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so he couldn't, he couldn't officiate for the rest of the game. And so they had to get... Uh, um, Carolyn Gillespie, who refereed the women's game prior, mm-hmm. she was already showered and dressed. So we had to wait for her to get into her ref's gear and came out. And she did a great <laughs> job as well. So yeah, yeah. What's what would be your best advice to anyone, um, any ref who's coming through the system, whether they're at a local level, Big V, NBL one, or NBL level, and wants to make that jump and get their fever badge? Yeah, look. Always, uh, always referee every game like it's your last game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of times you think nobody's watching you, but there's always somebody watching you. Mm-hmm. There's always somebody that will make comment if you've done a really good job. And there's also they'll make comment if you've done a poor job as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, referee every game like it's your last and, you know, be honest and keep up with the game. Take every opportunity that it comes when it comes your way. I mean, you know, I I think back to uh, to my story earlier where I was in Adelaide, went to Adelaide, and and got to referee. You know, probably two or three years before I I should have. Mm-hmm. You know, that escalated my career, and I can remember 
uh, I had a uh, pre-season game out at Keeler and yeah. Melbourne Tigers playing somebody. I can't remember who it was. And anyway, I was the only referee that turned up for wow. somehow the somehow the uh, communication to the other guys. Um, it didn't get through. So, you know, um, I looked around in the crowd and I knew there was at least three referees in the crowd that that. All I had to do was come down, blow a whistle, blow the, the lines. They didn't have to take fouls, yeah. <laughs> but they could have come down and got that experience and they chose not to, And um, which was, you know, a bit disappointing. And I told them that afterwards that, you know, they need to take these off. But they could have done a really good job. And yeah. and someone said, hey, I saw so-and-so do this game and they're really good, you know, so they could have escalated their careers as well. But um Anyway, it didn't happen, and I ended up refereeing the game on my own. <laughs> it, was, it was quite unique. Yeah, absolutely. Ray, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. It's been an absolute honour to have a legend of your status um, in the house. Thanks, mate. I really appreciate it, and good luck with your rest of your stuff. Thanks, Ray. Stay tuned, everyone, for some more Sporting Max. We'll see you soon. This is Sporting Max with Max Becker on SEM.